Here in the next couple of weeks, schools all around the nation will be filled with students dressed in their caps and gowns, uh, sitting in auditoriums or in chapels or on athletic fields and stadiums, ready to hear commencement speeches. Schools pay enormous sums of money to get a famous actor or a politician or an author there to give a graduation speech. But most speeches, honestly, are unremarkable and quickly forgotten. Most. Back in 2005, the writer David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at Kenyon College, a a small private college in Ohio. His words were picked up by the Wall Street Journal immediately after because they were so poignant and they have since kind of taken on a life of their own on the internet. Here's one small portion of that speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. Remarkable wisdom for a man not a Christian. And he's exactly right. Everybody worships. And Christian worship, gathering together as the people of God to worship God, that is the central act of a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to put it this way, as plainly and bluntly as I can. Without worship, the church fails to do the one thing that Jesus told it to do. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, discipling them. You can't do any of that if you don't have a worshiping church. Without worship, the church doesn't even exist. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 11, where the idea there in that passage is that we become the church around the communion table. Without worship, you as a Christian will wither and die. Here at Redeemer, we are well known as a worshiping congregation. We have our talented choir, we have our historic organ, our liturgy, our hymns, our robust congregational singing, our preaching, our teaching, the the large passages of Scripture that we read every Sunday, the prayers not only of our elders, but also of us as a congregation. When I look around at us, I really get this sense that we share this sense 
that what we do here each and every Sunday is really the most important part of our identity as the people of God. But we have to be careful. We have to be aware that sometimes what is to us the most important part may be to others something that they just take for granted. And if you take it for granted, it may be something that is easy to walk away from. Over the last seven years, our congregation has seen about a 60% turnover in membership. And part of what that means is there are lots of new people here that maybe don't completely understand all of the reasons why we do what we do. They, they look at our, you know, 29-page bulletin, and they go, good Lord, I mean, what in the world? Um, you wonder why the pastors process down the aisle, why are we wearing dresses? You get this question. That's part of the reason that we want to do this series, is to help you understand why we do what we do. But I'm also, as a parent of a, of a child that we're getting ready to send off to college, I also think that it is vitally important for our children to understand why we do what we do. I want my children and your children to understand that what we do here is not just what we do because this is what our family does. It's not just what we do because this is how tradition or culture tells us to spend our Sunday mornings. It is the right and the responsibility of God's people to gather together to worship. So for the next several weeks, we're going to study worship. We're going to look at different parts of our worship service, and I hope that we'll be reminded, reminded of the meaning and the value of honestly what is increasingly seen in our culture as kind of an odd thing to do. Like, why would you spend time doing that? And when something isn't understood broadly in a culture, it can quickly become a dangerous thing to other people too. So we need to have this kind of grounded in our own hearts. Now here's the big idea that I want to leave you with this morning. It's a one-point sermon. Worship is our opportunity to meet and to be met by the living God. That's the point. Worship is our opportunity to meet and to be met by the living God. If that's what worship is, it is immediately apparent what worship is not. We are not here to venerate someone who is still dead. We are not here to reenact a kind of golden age of history, a period that we want to try to redeem. We're not here to, to learn a philosophy of religion to impart morals to our children. We are not here to get in touch with our sacred self. We are here to meet and be met by the living God. That's the point of this passage that I've just read for us out of Hebrews chapter 12. Starting at verse 18, the author, and you might remember we touched on this passage months ago when we went through the book of Hebrews, so we're not going to do a deep dive into it. There's just a couple of important things that I want to draw out of it. You might remember from that sermon series that in this passage, the preacher, 
who I think is the author, is, a, is probably a pastor. These are probably his sermons that have been transcribed. The preacher is trying to convince his congregation that what they have as Christians is better than what God's people had under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant with temple worship and sacrifices. And he compares and he contrasts two different ways of worship. And under the old covenant, he shows how there's this, this excitement, this drama, this power that is present when God's people went to Mount Sinai. And yet when they were at Mount Sinai, they could hear God through the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets that's being blown. But they couldn't draw near to God. It was only Moses who could draw near to God. And when Moses got up to God, what happened to him? He had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. He could only see the backside of God's glory go before him. So even Moses himself didn't have the kind of access to God that our preacher is saying, you and I now have when we gather. What is worship? Worship is meeting and being met by the living God. Worship brings us into the presence of God. And we enact that structure, or we enact that truth through the structure of our service. And here I just want to quickly point out one or two things about what we do as a congregation. After our organ after Michael finishes playing the prelude, the choir stands and they sing the choral introit. And really what that is, it's, it's some part of a hymn, it's some part of an anthem that allows you to say, this is a different space. This is a different place. I am doing something different here than happens anywhere else in my life. It's an opportunity for you, if you have not done it yet, to put everything away, to put your phones down, to, to focus your, uh, your expectation on meeting God. And then the pastors, as we all sing, come down the center aisle, really enacting in a kind of show-and-tell way that we are moving from one reality into a new reality. That we are coming out of this world and we are entering into the heavenly Jerusalem. We are ascending Mount Zion. And just like the ancient Jews did in the, in the Old Covenant, when they went up to Jerusalem, we also sing. The ancient Jews, when they would go up to Jerusalem for the feast days, they would sing out of the Psalms, and we also lift our voices when we come into God's presence. And then our pastors stand here and we pray. We invoke the triune name of God. We ask for His blessing. We ask that He would make us attentive to the work that He's doing here among us. And that begins a conversation that we have with God. And you can go through our bulletin and notice that there is a back and forth between God and his people through the entire conversation or through the entire service. Think about the things that you'd say. Uh, you pray, you sing, you confess your sin, you confess your faith. After every single one of those, there is a response from God. 
We hear God's words in our welcome. We hear God's words in the passages of Scripture. We hear God's words when John and Danny and Marcus and Jack and I lift our hands and say, we declare that you are forgiven of your sins. That's not me out of any power that I have. That's God speaking to you. We hear God's speech in the benediction at the end as we are dismissed with his blessing. We even see and taste God's speech in the bread and the wine of communion. Back and forth, this dialogue happens between God and his people. And we're going to talk about more of those things in the subsequent weeks. But what I want you to focus on right now is that we have this opportunity to meet and be met by the living God. That means that we're not just kind of in the room with God. We're not just in in close proximity to God. We actually engage God in this conversation that then changes us. Now, at this point, your mind should be blown. You should be saying, like, I know who I am. Like, why would God want to engage me in a conversation? He knows what I did yesterday. He knows how far my heart is from him some days. What qualifies me as a creature not equal to my creator? What qualifies me even worse as a sinner at odds with God? What qualifies me to engage the living God in this way? I think the answer is here in verse 24. If the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is now access to God, the question of how that access is opened up is found in the work of Jesus. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Have you ever thought about that? What is that better word that the blood of Jesus speaks? Well, this harkens back to Genesis chapter 4. And if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two firstborn sons, they went to worship God. And Abel brought a sacrifice that pleased God, and Cain brought a sacrifice that did not please God. And instead of trying to find out, well, what exactly will please God, Cain got mad at Abel and decided that the only thing that really made sense was to murder his brother. And after he did the deed, God came to Abel or to Cain and said, where's your brother? I don't know. Like every child everywhere, right? Did you do this? I don't know. Um, Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I used to think that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. And that's why Jesus' blood was better than Abel's blood, because Jesus offers forgiveness. But a writer by the name of Chad Bird, who some of you know, points out that that's probably not accurate. If you think about who Abel is and what the book of Hebrews actually shows us about the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how Jesus is superior, 
we begin to get a different picture. There's nothing about Abel that would call out, that would make us think that after his death, he calls out for condemnation, for, for uh, uh, vengeance. Again, we know from Genesis 4, Abel was regarded by God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23 that Abel was righteous. And again, the entire message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior over what has happened before. Not that what has happened before is evil or was wrong. It was incomplete. And because it was incomplete, Jesus needed to come and fulfill it. Everything that happened before was pointing to something better, something that actually could accomplish what that only pointed to. Think about Abel's blood. Think about other righteous men and women in Scripture who are martyred. Where are the martyrs who call out for vengeance? Where are the martyrs who call out for condemnation? There aren't any in the Bible. Instead, like Stephen, who is stoned somewhat after the day of Pentecost, they call out for forgiveness. Maybe Abel's blood called out for forgiveness. But Jesus' blood is better because it can actually accomplish what forgiveness takes. His blood has to be actually shed in order for forgiveness to take effect. That's what allows us to come into the presence of God. See, God isn't asking you to dress yourself up. God isn't asking you to make sure that you've had a good week this week before you come into into the presence of God. God isn't asking you to make sure that you and your spouse haven't fought before you come into the presence of God. Because Jesus' blood actually accomplishes redemption and paves the way for you to be brought near so that you can meet the living God. As we come into his presence, as we come to engage this living God in conversation, we must also be very aware of who this God is. Verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Although the graciousness of the new covenant allows us to draw near to the throne of grace, we must remember that the God we meet is the same one who, in Isaiah chapter 6, is surrounded by perfectly holy creatures who still cover their eyes, who still cover their feet when they are in the presence of God. Well, good Lord, Eric, if that's what God requires of these perfectly holy creatures that surround the throne of God, what does He require of me? How can I draw near to Him? He requires of you gratitude and gravitas. Gratitude and gravitas. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When I preached through the book of Hebrews, I spent a long time on this idea of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
You can go back to the website and hear that. I don't want to spend time on that. I simply want to see that for right now, we don't yet see that kingdom. Not in its fullness, not in its glory. We don't yet see every knee bowed and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. We still struggle with injustice in God's creation. We still sin and we inflict sin on other people. But even though we don't see it in its fullness, we do get tangible expressions of it. Given to us as gifts. You see, before the kingdom broadly shows up in our culture, we are able to enter into this embassy of grace. We are able to enter into this scale model of the kingdom that is coming. And here in our presence, as we meet with the living God, we are given signs and seals of His victory. We are given tangible expressions of the day that His kingdom will overwhelm all other kingdoms. Every Sunday, we are brought face to face with the reality that His kingdom will triumph and that we have been made partakers of that kingdom by God's grace. Friends, when you hear the words of Scripture read, when you hear the pronouncement of forgiveness, when you taste the elements of the Lord's Supper, when you watch someone being baptized, when you hear the benediction that your pastors give you, you should just be amazed. This is what I get to participate in. I who was once far off have been brought near. I who was once a rebel from God have now been made his friend. Loving amazement. That's what gratitude is. That gratitude has to be paired with gravitas. We enter, we come with reverence and awe. Now, don't misunderstand what the author is saying here doesn't matter. He's not talking about the style of the music. He's not talking about the style of the service. He's not talking about whether you are expressive or reserved. He's talking about our heart's posture in worship. The nearer that we are brought to God, the greater will be our sense of the infinite gulf that remains between the Creator, and we His creatures. You see, the closer that you are drawn to God, the greater you will see in the distinction between His holiness and your sin, between His majesty and your humility, between His perfections and your failures. But instead of holding us at arm's length, preventing us from coming into His presence, God invites us into His presence. And we are met not with judgment, but justification. Not with destruction, but with purifying sanctification. So friends, as you worship, come with a sense of God's majesty. Come with a sense of your own need, but also come with the expectation that He delights in you and He welcomes you into His presence. 100 years ago, this year, 
the great Presbyterian theologian and New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen wrote his enormously influential book, Christianity and Liberalism, still in print. He spends chapter after chapter describing the, the problems of progressive theology that was making its way into the Presbyterian churches of the 1920s and into the seminaries, and it was really changing the whole nature of the church. And after spending all of this time diagnosing the ills facing the church, he concludes with these words about worship. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often, one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's Word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed to the background by the glory of the cross. He comes instead with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or with easy solutions to the vast problem of sin. And sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation, from race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of life, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God. That is the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive a weary world. The house of God. The gate of heaven. Oh, friends, may that be our experience today. And every day that we gather here to meet the living God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our vision is often too limited, our expectations too small. Open our eyes to the spiritual reality in which you have called us to partake. Comfort us that we are being met, not, with a vengeful, not by a vengeful king, but by a loving father who at the cost of his own son welcomes us into his presence. We pray all of this in the name of that Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.